Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Business of Content Podcast, a place where you can learn how to use digital and social media to drive your business and personal brand. And now your hosts, A. Lee Judge and Dante Carter. Once again, welcome to the Business of Content Podcast, where we talk about content creation and how to utilize it to connect with your audience. I'm A. Lee Judge. And I'm Dante Carter. On this episode, we have a special guest, Jacob Warwick, and we're going to talk about creating content for two specific types of branding, business branding and personal branding. We're going to cover these three things today, Dante. We're going to discuss the two, two of marketing's toughest challenges with content, um, how to measure the success of your business content, and we're going to discuss the importance of creating strong content for your personal brand. But first, let's get to know our guest, Jacob Warwick. Jacob, please tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. I have a, about a 10-year background in tech marketing and startup marketing in Silicon Valley. Uh, I have two businesses, which will probably apply very closely to our chat here. And one is a, a marketing company uh, where I do a lot of marketing consulting for tech startups and bringing brands to market. And then secondarily, I have a, a career branding company uh, called Discover Podium, um, where I help primarily executives or other professionals uh, better brand themselves for career opportunities that they're looking for. Great. That's a lot going on, Jacob. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll go ahead and jump right in and we'll start off with business. You wrote a recent article on how to overcome two of content marketing's toughest challenges. What are those two challenges? Well, two of the toughest challenges that I've seen while working in uh, particular content roles, uh, anywhere from a content manager role up to the VP level, uh, is that uh, time management is the number one challenge. There are so many things that you know us as marketers can be doing uh, to grow our businesses that there doesn't seem to be enough time in the day to get them all done. Uh, and then the second challenge is uh, hiring the right people to do it. Yeah. Uh, again, because there are so many different things that you can be doing. Like this podcast, for example, is content. Uh, a video is content. Uh, writing articles on third-party publications and through PR, all different types of content, and they all require different skills. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect a copywriter to be great with audio gear or a graphic designer to be excellent at video work. Uh, so there are all these different challenges that we're kind of navigating for, you know, what is the best way to brand your business? And thus, if you try to do everything, you don't have the time for it, or you probably don't have the skills on your team to do it either. Yeah, that's exactly what Dante and I were talking about maybe about an hour ago. Um, basically, companies like yours and, and mine, Content Monster, came out of the need. Well, once we realized, and I think you'll agree, is that uh, if someone is doing what they do very well, they don't have time to create content. And most people who are creating tons of content for themselves are spending their time creating content as opposed to being an expert and doing what they what they do. Is that what you see? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with balance. Uh, and that's one of my, you know, I, I guess the key takeaway uh, from that article and as well as this uh, recent webinar that we did with marketing profs is that uh, marketers need to manage their expectations a bit better. 
you need to find balance. And if you're a one man show or one female show, or you're just working at a large company, but you only have a few resources on your marketing team, you need to be very selective with what you choose to spend your time on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best way that I've seen to do that is to manage expectations with your superiors. Uh, and if you're an entrepreneur, then you are your superior, but you need to know that you can't spend all day creating content when you also need to be you know, the chief financial officer, the one sending out mm-hmm. the invoices, the one you know, tackling down new sales opportunities. And you're kind of a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So you can't get too bogged down in, I have to get this article out this week. I need to do you know, an article a day or my blog is going to fail. Uh, it's really about finding that balance that works best for you so that you can get every business priority done and then supplement it with content when applicable. So let me ask you this. At what point, and this is the question that not only have I faced myself, but also it's one of the first questions I ask a potential client. Uh, and I want to get your input on this. At what point what, do you recognize that it's time for a person or a business to begin outsourcing some of that content creation? Well, when you need to outsource, it's really when you're bogged down and doing other tasks for your company. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have an idea on what you need to accomplish, or, but not the skills or the resources in-house to do that. Uh, that's an okay time to start exploring. Uh, you'll need to you know, think about the purpose of why you're outsourcing that in the first place, which I think if you're talking with a uh a potential client and they come to you and they say, Hey, you know, help me out here. Uh, they have a need for content and no time to do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that case, they, they know they need to be doing something, um, but they either don't know how to execute, don't have the time to execute or would prefer a professional to take over for them. Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, even as somebody that works heavily in content and knows how to write content and has, I have a byline at uh, entrepreneur and at Forbes magazine uh, where I could publish once a week, but I physically can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so the need for me is that I have channels. I have an audience need that people would like to hear from me in these other channels, but I need help creating that. And that's really where I've kind of determined that there's a benefit for me uh, to even hire outside help. I can Mm -hmm. create a website, but I'm not the best at it. So I hire people to help me with that. And, you know, that's obviously the need is going to change for each person, but it's, it's likely identifying a need that uh, the company has that they just can't accomplish in-house. Exactly. You know, we had a show recently where we talked about, you know, how do you know what content is best for you to create? But, you know, the bottom line with that is even if you know what your ideal content type is, then you just have that one content type and you may need more. And like you said, that may not be your your sweet spot of your area of expertise, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes the the content you need is really time consuming and you need to find an alternative. Uh, For me, for example, uh, I I previously wrote a lot of content um, for third party publications and things like that, Mm -hmm. um, but I was paid to do so. So Mm -hmm. in a way, I was marketing myself while other people were paying me to market myself while also paying me to market them. So in a way, like it kind of, there was a purpose for it because there was money, you know, taking place there uh, and that helped that conversation along. Uh, But now I'm not doing a lot of writing for folks. Uh, I'm really focused on uh, my business um, and some of my clients. Uh, And I guess that catch 22 with marketing, especially when you're like a marketing agency is uh, you spend so much time marketing your clients and helping them that you don't ever market yourself. So there's that balance there. And then when you're going to scope a new client, they say, oh, well, hey, Lee, uh, I, you say you're great at marketing, but your website is terrible. 
And, <laughs> you know, like, why aren't you marketing yourself more? And you're like, well, I'm busy marketing all my clients and, you know, proving success for them. I so think that's that a, yeah, that's a unique problem for marketing agencies, you know? Yeah. You know I mean? And a lot of marketing agencies have terrible websites, but they're really good at marketing. Yeah, and yeah. you wonder why. And that's because nobody's paying them to market themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go to the need, which is to pay the bills and pay their employees before they go to the secondary need of marketing their business for growth. So there's that balance that you always need to kind of hustle with. Uh, and for me, I've noticed like if I write a quick sentence on LinkedIn and publish it to my network, that's almost more effective than an article because I can start a conversation. I can gauge interest. I'm engaging with my customers or potential customers. And it's it takes me a minute to think of two or three sentences to write on LinkedIn where it could take me four or five hours to write an article and then several subsequent emails to follow up and make sure it's published and then putting a distribution strategy behind that. And all of a sudden you're into, you know, a 20 hour piece of content. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, in an hour you could have a full conversation happening on LinkedIn or through another channel. And that comes from knowing, you know, even with that small amount of content, it know, you have to know what to post what to say, have some expertise behind it, and even know when to post it. So there's there's still a science to that even. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I wanted to know is, you know, it's people are always amazed when it comes to content, how we do what we do. And I think, you know, it really comes down to the the proof is in the pudding. It's really looking at the numbers. What are some of the, the measurables that you look at and that you deliver to clients to really show them the impact of what you do? Well, and this is one of those catch-all questions that is always going to result in, well, it depends, Dante, um, which is you know, <laughs> one of those answer. answers that, that nobody likes to hear. For me, for example, I judge content success on the ability to close a sale. Okay. Um, so for me, um, if I write an article and it's published and that resulted in me getting paid for that article, that is successful content on my end. Now, for yeah. a client's end, it could be the traffic that they get from that that particular piece of content and all the way down to a conversation that they had that led to a sales prospect down the line. Now it's particularly challenging in my, my field, uh, uh, enterprise, uh, business to business software, um, because the buying decision in a lot of the companies that I consult with, uh, can take anywhere from six to 18 months. Yeah. So it's very difficult to say, okay, here's the first touch point. Here's an article that you wrote, let's say for SAP. Uh, a senior decision maker uh, read that article. They had the conversation in-house. They started, you know, talking to our sales team. Six months later, we got to a proposal. You know, like it's a very long process uh, in B2B. Yeah. So those KPIs change. Sometimes it's how many touch points you get on the website. How long are they staying on our website? Are they reading multiple pages? Are they engaging with our sales reps? Um, you know, and any part of that process when it's such a long and complicated process can fall off and you don't know whether it was your content or maybe it was the sales rep that took the wrong angle or maybe it just wasn't a fit for the company but the average buying decision kind of in the industry that i'm at uh, there's somewhere between five and six decision makers that need to sign off on the purchases that we're selling so when somebody's buying a hundred thousand dollar product it's not usually one person that says okay buy it now yeah well, I was going to say, I also have, have done a lot of work and analysis in how to utilize content from B2B standpoint with the long sales cycle. And a couple of, I guess, I wouldn't even call it, well, yeah, there, there could be KPIs. I don't know about 
key points or key uh, performance indicators, but they're definitely performance indicators, is you have a piece of content. And when you're looking at long sales cycle, I like to look at it from a multi-touch attribution standpoint, meaning that it isn't the first time a client sees you or hears from you. It isn't the last time. It's all those things in between the content, the phone call, the webinar, all those different touches. And from someone trying to inject content into that, um, that those, those series of touches, I want to see that it, that it actually landed there. In other words, if, if you look at your last five opportunities and you see, okay, this opportunity included five phone calls, a webinar, and, you know, white paper. You want to look through those at some point and see that content as part of those journeys. And I think your first level is recognizing those pieces of content showing up in multiple journeys to know that it's actually being effective. Yeah. And I think in B2B, multi-touch attribution is is, uh, much more powerful than in a lot of B2C cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I particularly mean that at a higher cost, not just B2C in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas a, you know, if you were marketing a, uh, a soda or a toothpaste or something that people buy on a regular basis, that's really led through awareness and branding campaigns and marketing. Yeah. Whereas a, uh, an expensive product, let's say GE is selling a jet engine, you know, something $50,000, $100,000, they're selling it to Boeing or something like that. That sales process is going to be much more drawn out. And the proof of, you know, you said the proof is in the pudding. Is that, did the piece of content that you create, did that educate that buyer and help them purchase that product or did they not even read it? Like a view and seeing it for 10 seconds or whatever doesn't count, you know, in that multi-touch attribution. But it is really important that you bring that up. And I didn't realize, you know, how technical you wanted to get on this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because even even advanced companies don't understand multi-touch attribution. Yeah. And they want to say, okay, did your social media post close this deal? You're in you cannot give full attribution to that. There's just too much, you know, there are too many variables along the process, especially a long drawn out sales process that could attribute to that sale. Well, so I've found really that as a, as a marketing person, especially when you, you know, you use content as part of your marketing arsenal, explaining multi-touch attribution is, is a great tool to, to help settle down the expectations. Um, if they expect you to put a blog article out or a white paper out and boom, the next day you get a deal, knowing that their sales cycle is six, eight months or more, that's unrealistic. So I think it helps explain the success or the, the progress of your content. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, most companies that are selling products at that price should know better than to say, <laughs> should. you put a blog post out and, and all of a sudden it was successful. They should know better. But, um, in, in, this might be my background just from being in Silicon Valley. Expectations are very, very high. Yeah. There are companies that have marginally okay ideas. They got way too much funding. They hired up a, you know, fairly quickly. And then they kind of run into problems where they need to show exponential growth to their VC firm or they're not getting a second round and everyone's losing their jobs. So you run into a situation where everyone knows they need to be doing content, but content is such a long-term plan that it doesn't align with the expectations of what the board of directors or the VCs want. So in a lot of cases, those companies in Silicon Valley, I'm just using as an example, will lean heavier on like paid advertising and more of a pay to play model until they saturate that market and then switch over to content accordingly. And let me ask you a question right there. Cause I want to make sure that, that, cause this is right in line with what you're saying. 
it's kind of a quiz for you. How would you address this kind of request from from a CMO? CMO? Let's say the CMO comes to you and says, Jacob, we need to move the needle this quarter. What can we do now that will move the needle and show me results within weeks? How do you answer that? Besides, yeah, chuck- besides chuckling. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we all chuckle when we have that, but it's, it's you know, depending on how confident you are in your position with the company you're working with, depends on how hard you laugh at your CMO. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, just aside, like this happens to us all the time. And, you know, I'm in a situation where a client wants to move the needle. We're investing heavily in the team. Uh, you still manage the expectations that, uh, you know, we're going to experiment with things and we're going to start growing long term. However, there are plays that you can use to move the needle faster. And what I'm talking about and what I was kind of touching on there earlier uh, is that paid advertising is the way to go for early gains. Hmm. The problem with paid is that as the more money you dump into it, you know, the more results you get in theory. But as soon as you turn that money off, all your results go away. Hmm. And with content, it's the opposite. You dump money in and you don't get anything, but it slowly grows over time. And as you build that organic and you invest in your company and you, you build out a team of copywriters and folks that are focused on distribution and lead generation and design, and you build that cohesive team, you have long-term results and more sustainable results. You're not going to get, I put $100,000 into a bucket and I got 150000 back, so it was successful. You'll get, I got $100,000 and I put it into a team. I got 20000 back the first three months, and then I got 40 and then 50 and then, you know, whatever, it just slowly scales over time. So the, the question, and and I guess the challenge to the CMO isn't, do we do one or the other? It's really about doing both at a comfortable balance that fits within what the company can afford Mm -hmm. from a marketing spend perspective, Mm -hmm. as well as where the company is. So for an example, uh, Pepsi can launch content marketing, no problem, but a company you've never heard of, can't just launch content marketing because, well, nobody's heard of them. They won't find the content. So they're going to have to pay, you know, a certain amount in advertising to get the brand awareness out there yeah. and supplement it with content along the way. It doesn't mean you need to fully invest in let's do a, an article a day. It's really more like let's build one great case study, one great webinar and a few articles. And that'll be our the, all we're focused on content wise right now. And then let's drive traffic to it. And keep driving traffic to what we done, what we have built there. It's kind of a minimal viable product approach, right? You've built the foundation. It's like, say you have like a LinkedIn profile and it's your first day having it. Yeah. It's completely empty. Would you spend a bunch of money to drive people to your LinkedIn profile to see nothing? <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, but that doesn't mean that you need to update your summary section every week. Yeah. You, you build out the foundation first and then you drive traffic to it. And all of a sudden, from then on, everyone that sees your LinkedIn profile knows exactly what you want to show them. So speaking on foundation, right, I want to know what your definition is of the personal brand. And when it comes to that personal brand versus the business brand and that direction that you you tend to send your ideal clients, those C-suite guys. Yeah, actually, I, I tend to work more with females. Okay, um, which is just a, I guess, a, a side note there. But um, for me, personal brand is the perception that other people have when they, you know, learn about you for the first time. It's that first impression, and 
you know, it, it obviously goes beyond that as you, you grow and you build relationships and things like that. But for me, the most powerful part of the, is the perception. Like if you had gone to my LinkedIn profile and didn't see uh, all of my background with copywriting and marketing and agency work and all of this, you likely wouldn't have reached out to me to do this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So the perception that I gave to you was that I knew what I was talking about in marketing and that opened the door for us to have a conversation later. Very important. Well, so let's talk a bit about, about content and the personal brand. Um, at, at my company, we, we enable and, cur- and encourage our clients to, you know, our slogan is be content instead of be content, be content. And we do this by building personal brands through creating digital content to communicate their, ba- their brand. So what are some examples you've encountered of people and perhaps your clients um, accelerating their career by utilizing content to build their strong personal brand? Well, I mean, I, I think one example of that, uh, and I, you know, not that I'm endorsing him or anything, but I think Gary Vaynerchuk is pretty well-spoken on that. Um, building a brand for a particular audience uh, and doing, you know, live video streams and things like that. People constantly hear of him and you either love him or you hate him. And yeah. that's totally fine. That's kind of beside the point. Um, what I saw on LinkedIn today, uh, Lee, I saw you talk about you went to a college and you were explaining marketing to, uh, or was it a middle school? Well, it was a... You're talking about marketing curriculum. Yeah, it was a board of education working on the... Today was the middle school and I guess next month it's going to be the high school. So yeah, the curriculum for marketing. Right. So you shared that on LinkedIn and I wouldn't have normally seen that uh, in any other way. And that probably wouldn't have come up in conversation. But now I can see that you know more about marketing. You're actually helping educational boards talk about it Uh and grow that marketing curriculum. Uh And, you know, that's one example of how that's worked to help me change my perception of you, Uh knowing that you know enough about marketing to educate other people. And then, for example, this podcast me speaking with you, you may have never heard of me before and you may never want to hear from me again. That's fine. But if there's some perception that you take away from the podcast, it's like, wow, that Jacob guy might know about marketing. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a perception that now we can portray through this piece of content. Whereas you wouldn't, you likely wouldn't have found my LinkedIn randomly and you likely wouldn't have reached out, but this channel, which you were already following has now opened the door for those opportunities. You know, for folks who I think some people still are learning what a personal brand is and they get it mixed up with with bragging. But I think one thing I often start with in explaining that is that your personal brand, of course, is, you know, who you're known for, what you're known for when you're not there. But in terms of you working on your, on your personal brand, it's a lot of you being yourself for people to see. And it's not you bragging. It's just you being yourself. And as people see you and they see you as being the content they're consuming, then with repetition, just like any other brand, that becomes your brand and it's your personal brand of that repetition of them seeing you often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that uh, that perception is key and it's not bragging. I mean, it certainly could be. You could be boastful, you could be arrogant, and that would be your brand. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there in, you know, the celebrity space or in, you know, the hip hop scene or, you know, any music kind of celebrity and mm-hmm. you, they can appear as boastful or you could see, you know, other brands, celebrity brands, for example, that are very kind and generous. And all the stories you see about them are about giving back to communities and building things and, and helping people. And, uh, you know, it's not about being boastful. It's about being yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, me, for example, I'm not afraid to curse from time to time or share my thoughts on marketing. And, 
you know, be honest with people and mm-hmm. tell them when I can or cannot help them. Um, there's no hiding there. Yeah. And, you know, the more I can share and be relatable to people, the more relatable people that I can connect with and eventually, you know, grow a business or friendships or any any other thing that you could be looking to accomplish. Yeah. A phrase I often hear in my head from, you know, I was previously a DJ. There was a song by Missy Elliott where she said, I don't brag, I mostly boast. And it, and it had me researching, hmm, what is the difference? And I, I heard someone else say uh, the difference between bragging and boasting is boasting you can back it up. You know, if you if you brag and say, oh, I'm the best in the world, that's probably bragging. If you say, I've done X, Y, Z 10 times, if you can prove you've done it 10 times, that's just boasting. It's not bragging. It's just natural fact. So you got to be Muhammad Ali. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, well, he definitely backed it up. So yeah, that's maybe an, that's a, that's a real close fine line between bragging and boasting. But it, you know, if you say I've won, you know, I'm a New York Times bestseller. If you say, here's the book to prove it or the numbers, that's boasting. It's not bragging. It's just a fact. If you did it, you did it. So, um, and I think, uh, it's a, it's a fine line and it's, people have to be careful about it, but I, I don't think people get rubbed the wrong way when you come off as boasting, when they know, and I guess your brand supports that, they know that you have something to back it up with. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that the purpose of having a resume anyway? Exactly. Yeah. Like, and, and when you think of LinkedIn and a lot of, um, a lot of the perception around LinkedIn is that you only update it when you're trying to find a job or, uh, you, you know, it's, it's your public resume. Mm -hmm. So that's about the time that you talk about yourself and what you've done and those accomplishments, uh, you don't need to shout it from the mountaintops and say, look, uh, you know, I did this, I did that. Rather, I think what people really look for, particularly in leaders, when they are boasting online is talking about what the team was able to accomplish, mm-hmm. what we were able to do. Uh, always, you know, give give respect to even the smallest contributor um, when you have the opportunity to. And that changes your boast to a team effort, even if you were the one that did 98% of the work. Mm. So I, I have a quick question for you, right? And I, I want to shift it a little bit here because, you know, we've talked about content, branding. But in this whole realm of content and branding, I want to ask you how important is is a, a, a person or, or a business's story to building their brand? I think a business's story is really important um, to, to building their brand, the company culture, things like that. Uh, it's become more and more popular lately mm-hmm. um, just with how outspoken and public things are. Uh, for example, um, like Apple is well known to have a great culture. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, there were, there were other companies in the Valley that were getting in trouble. I think Uber was an example uh, for sexual harassment and misconduct in the workplace. Yeah. And it caused a bunch of controversy and buzz. And just with how quickly information can be shared, it's more important now than it's ever been before. And I think that was validated with Glassdoor um, where people shared kind of the insight about their companies and what it was like to work there. Uh, and I guess the company brand. And uh, when I mean validated by Glassdoor, I mean, they're required for 1.2 billion this year. Wow. A lot of money. Uh, and yeah, that's a, that's a lot of money. And LinkedIn was acquired for 26.2 billion. <sighs> It'd be worth and, a lot more today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, these two are, you know, those two companies have, have really kind of shown people like, more transparency into the workplace, you know, more LinkedIn solved networking, Glassdoor solved that transparency component. Um, they really opened the door for uh, that that company brand to be more important than ever before. So let, let me ask you this, because 
we're, we're talking about branding. We're talking about the story. Just today, I was looking at LinkedIn, and there was a woman who, in the last few days here, she's really started to push a lot of social issues on LinkedIn. She's a VP, um, pretty big company here in Georgia. And it almost caught me off guard because when I think of LinkedIn, I think of it being a, almost, a, in a sense, a, a place of, of business, you know, and uh, keeping the social issues out. What are you seeing on that end? And in terms of, you know, a lot of the people that you work with, what are some of the things that you advise advise them on when it comes to that area? Uh, well, it, again, it's going to come back to their personal brand, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, maybe... Uh, for her, um, that's an important issue that she wants to raise and elevate. And that might be, you know, part of the work that, you know, she wants to do and it might rub us the wrong way, but there is an audience for what she's, she's putting out there and that's okay. Um, I think even polarizing brands, uh, can be effective. Yeah. For example, there are millions and millions of people who hate Donald Trump. And there are millions and millions of people that would jump in front of a bullet for him <laughs> just from and it, whether you love him or hate him, you know, that's beside the point, yeah. but that polarizing has become, you know, important for his political career uh, and, or whatever else he's trying to do. It's the same for you or I, like I wouldn't advise an executive um, to talk about political issues mm-hmm. um, only because it will limit their opportunities mm-hmm. in some regards, but it will also open a lot of doors. So, for example, if let's say Lee comes out and he's like, I am a diehard Republican and I'm very, very, you know, red. Right. Great. (laughs) And, you know, there might be like companies out there like, yeah, that's the kind of guy we want because we're conservative, too. This is great. And then there might be people who are like, whoa, I can't handle this. Right. It's Mm -hmm. a polarizing kind of effect. So in one regard, you could open a lot of doors if that's the path you want to choose in another other regards, it will close a lot of doors. Yeah, I would definitely ask a person before they did that, if they ask me, you know, is it okay for me to post these things? I would say first have a careful thought about how that benefits your brand or your business. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, if you are a member of an organization that has a, a cause, then by all means, that's what you should be posting about because that's your business. Um, if you are... If your personal brand is one that uh, that's a person who's extremely caring, and you want to show that you have you show empathy, then posting something even controversial, political about something that's about caring that has to do with something that people care about, even though it's not it may not be dead center of what you do, it shows it, it emphasizes your personal brand. Um, but at, outside of those two things, it emphasizing your brand, showing you showing the audience more of who you are. I think I would suggest someone to leave those things alone uh, outside of, especially LinkedIn, for example, Facebook, yeah, perhaps. I, but you know, I think if you don't know what you're doing, then it can be really dangerous. Yeah, like I've always been very, very careful with political issues. One because I'm probably not smart enough to make a decision either way. Yeah, on who's right or who's wrong. So I just keep my mouth shut when it comes to that. I don't want to polarize. And to be honest, I think a lot of us are a bit closer on issues than we think. Yeah. Uh, and we're just bad at communicating. It's true. So, you know, you'll see rants on Facebook. And you're like, wow, that could have been said better. <laughs> and you know what they mean. Like, you know, they have good intentions, but they just said it in a way that kind of rubs someone the wrong way. You have to be so careful with that kind of thing. You know, speaking of and, Lincoln, I've seen people who I, I recognize don't get their their outlet on Facebook. They're not Facebook users. But yet they're human and they want to vent. 
And so once they become LinkedIn users, they don't know how to release that information because they're, sure, they're yeah. only out, out. Yeah, they're only outlets face, um, LinkedIn. And so I go, you know what, man, you you should become a Facebook user. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and the thing is, I wouldn't differentiate Facebook and LinkedIn in terms of a content engine that way. Sure, the perception is that LinkedIn is for business, mm-hmm. um, but it's a media platform just like anything else. That's mm-hmm. true. And honestly, if you don't want it online, don't say it anywhere. Mm. Period. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can, like, I keep my Facebook just as business appropriate as my LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I keep my Twitter just as appropriate. I mean, it, granted, there are rules that seem to change between the lines. But the fact is, if you're putting something online, it's there forever. You don't know who's going to see it. That's true. Like, there's, you, you have to be careful. And I, I wrote about this, man, back when I was, you know, in high school, I wrote about like social media was just becoming popular. Like MySpace was popular <laughs> and Facebook was for old people at the time. And, uh, basically I, there was kids in my high school class that were taking pictures, drinking beer or, you know, doing shots and smoking pot and stuff like that. And I'm like, you're going to try to get a job. Like you realize that people will find you online and they will find these pictures of you basically breaking rules, which is going to hurt your employability. Mm-hmm. And some of these kids, they went to Berkeley or they went and they got a great degree from, you know, an Ivy League school. And then they came back to our hometown working at Roundtable. And not to say there's anything wrong with working at a pizza place. It's just you have a bachelor's degree or master's degree and you're working in, in food service or retail. It's like what happened? You know, um, it's it's that these things that you put online damage your reputation. And the things that you say, and, you know, and a lot of people have been frustrated. They'll be, you know, 28, 29 years old, you know, just getting their first entry level jobs with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because we, we talk a lot more typically about building your personal brand than we do about protecting it. Um, so that that plays into, you know, how do you handle your different your different personalities or personas that you may have across different social uh, platforms? How do you you know, how do you recognize things you've done in the past? Because, for example, you did something stupid in high school or college. You posted it online, but you've been a perfect person up until 30 years later when you get caught up in a scandal. With today's media, they'll dig it up and say, see, they did this in high school. They must be a bad person after all. You're like, well, I was 18, you know. But it's something you see with all the athletes now and even some of the journalists where they tweeted something out 10 years ago. It may have had a racial undertone or political undertone to it. And people are saying, well, how can I trust you to um, play ball (laughs) or even deliver the news? Because it's been a lot of journalists who've, I mean, people are going back and they're looking at it. And I think that question is, well, how do you rebuild your personal brand? You well, know, I think first of all that the same training programs that professionals athletes go through, I think the average person should go through. There. It's true. The professional, the student should go through the same kind of training to help them realize the permanency of anything they do online. Yeah, and I think you know to answer your question on how to how do you come back for that, I think you get in front of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the worst cases that you see with you know PR scandals and crisis management is when uh, people try to sweep it under the rug and say, oh, that was taken out of context. Well, people will make their own opinions before that and not believe you. Yeah. So, for example, like there was that uh, that flight where um, they left the dog in the overhead bin and they forced the dog to stay up there and he died. Yeah. And the CEO, they did like a press release the next day and they're like, well, the flight attendant was doing their job. 
<laughs> it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like it's better. It's better to come out and say, look, in hindsight, we screwed up. Yeah. Like me as the CEO am taking ownership because I told these flight attendants through, you know, subsequent people that I've hired in our training programs that they were not allowed to have a dog in the thing, right? Like with you in the lap, breathing and living like a normal human thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, so it's better to get on top of it and say, look, guys, we screwed up and we're changing that policy and we're sorry. It's better to say that up front than to go, yeah, they were just doing their job. No, you took it out of context. No, you're wrong. Well, in fact, in, in hindsight, they might actually get more business. Because if I'm a person who right. files with my dog and they say, yes, we messed up. We shouldn't. We should, this is a bad judgment. It shouldn't have happened. As a consumer, I'm thinking, okay, they got out in front of it. They they probably have rules in place now. They're probably the safest airline to fly with with my pet versus those who haven't right. said anything. And so you can definitely get out in front of it and make it a positive thing uh, versus what you said they did, which was the flight attendant was doing their job. Yeah, that's yeah. horrible. It's yeah. bad. Well, you, you know, it puts people in a position, companies especially, where they have to evaluate situations quickly. You can't afford to say, let's let's take a day and figure out what's going on. I mean, think about how quickly Starbucks reacted after that incident. You know, with the two gentlemen that were arrested in the restaurant, they said, you know what? We're going to have some additional training. We're going to close all of our stores nationwide. Like, you have to come out and do something that matches the level of negativity that happened. Yeah, they, they yeah. did a big turnaround on that one. Yeah. And it can be brought back to personal brands just at a much smaller scale. Yeah, it's right? so true. Everyone knows what uh, everyone knows what Starbucks is, but not everyone knows Lee and Dante. So <laughs> We're working on you, it. You have a smaller network to work on, um, but if something like that does happen, uh, I think it's better to address it head on. And uh, even in interviews and stuff, if you know, you know that possibly an employer had seen something that you had, you had done, bring it up in the interview. Yeah. And say, look, you know, this is something I'm not proud of, but I learned from it and I grew and, you know, I'll give you all the details and I'll share it and I'll tell you how it made me feel. And that, that transparency and that honesty, uh, in my experience has not backfired or let me down. Um, I've, you know, maybe not gotten a job for being too honest about a team that I'd worked with in the past, but I've been transparent and I know that, you know, I can sleep well at night because of my honesty. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, Jacob. So I'm sure we, we both work with with executives and people at much different, you know, different levels of, of their career. Um, so often I ask someone, you know, are you John Smith of Acme or are you John Smith? You know, what happens when the company disappears? Who are you then? So and often that that message gets lost when they're a high level executive because they feel quite confident in where they are. But as we know, even CEOs find themselves on their own sometimes. So. When talking about a personal brand, how do you explain to an executive the importance of creating their own brand beyond the business? Well, I've, I've noticed that lately, I think executives have a pretty good idea on what a personal brand is. They know the importance of it. Um, I think the turnover rates now in, in executive roles is much higher than it's ever been before. Mm. Uh, the time it takes to fill those positions is high. So executives kind of always have their eye on the you know, knowing what their next opportunity is going to be just in case. And they're smart enough to get ahead of it in many cases. The challenges that I more likely encounter or more often encounter is that uh, executives know what they need to do, but they don't have time to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And there aren't a lot of people that are qualified that can help them through those challenges uh, just because 
one, they don't have a lot of time to handhold and babysit somebody. They need someone that's empathetic to their challenges, uh, can write in short sentences, uh, get responses in short sentences and not be hurt. Mm-hmm. And then be able to execute uh, exactly what they need to improve their brand, whether that be, you know, a new resume or LinkedIn profile or, uh, you know, a portfolio or a presentation they need to give to their board of directors. Um, just having like every executive has like a kind of trusted group of people that are, you know, they sometimes they'll bring them into new positions once they have it. Like this is my money guy. This is my uh, my finance gal or whatever. Uh, and they have their trusted advisors, uh, but they don't have a lot of that for their career. Well, I think that may be where a couple of our businesses came from, right? Recognizing that if you're good at what you're doing, you don't have time to do content creation. Exactly. But you you know what you need to do. You know what it should look like. Um, maybe you haven't done the processes in the past. Like the first time you went and did a podcast and you went to go edit, you probably spent two or three times as much time as you spend now editing that podcast. And that first time is just a hurdle that you have to get over and then it gets easier and easier as you go. Uh, but executives know how to write. They know how you know to do their LinkedIn profile, but they don't necessarily have time and they don't know who to trust when it comes to stuff like that. And that's, I guess that's where our businesses came from that, you know, we know how to ask the right questions. Uh, we know how to uh, analyze your strengths and weaknesses, question the way that you choose to position yourself and challenge you to grow as an individual and as a professional, and, and then represent that in the best way possible in as few words as possible so that people will understand who you are from a brand right away. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, I mean, if we're honest about it, right, the whole personal brand, it's, it's very intimate. I'm giving you a piece of me that, that, that I don't give to a lot of people that I don't share with a lot of people. And so to be able to hand you something and trust that, you know what, I can give you my personal brand, my baby, and you can raise it up. You can mature it. You can take it from, you know, <laughs> having formula to eating a full course meal. Like these are the things that matter to people. And um, yeah, I, I just, I appreciate you really hitting the, hitting the nail on the head with that. You know, with that analogy, yeah. you're not just raising that personal brand up in terms of trust. You're saying, here's my personal brand, raise it and take it out into the world without me. Yeah. That's a whole nother level. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, like there's a level of confidentiality there and you're not just kind of acting. Uh, you do, run things by them and that builds the trust and the confidence that you will be responsible with that brand in your hands uh, and that you're not going to go blab about who you're working with or, uh, you know, leak any confidential information so that they can build that trust as well. And really the only way to do that is to summarize someone's career into just a few words. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds really stupid. You're like, well, how can you take my 25-year executive career and, and boil me down into five words or one summary paragraph or things like that? It's, you know, it's challenging. But the thing is, people aren't going to remember more than that. Yeah. Like the, the attention span that we have and all of the information that we're cluttered with, it really has to be boiled down simple. And the idea of presenting someone's personal brand immediately, like the first thoughts that you want someone to have is they know what they're doing. I trust them. I like them. I want to talk to them. That's it. You don't want anything that's going to say, oh, I don't really believe in that. That looks shady. Like those numbers look fake. You know, that will immediately ruin your credibility. So you have to boil it down into, you know, trust, honesty, and wanting to talk to them and feel comfortable with that. But that's that's every level of business. It's that relationship, you know, and, and, and allowing that that personal brand to grow from it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have full control over what you choose to share with the world, why would you not take advantage of, you know, that platform? All right. That pretty much sums it up right there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's been a really good show. And we want to definitely thank you, Jacob, for joining us. 46 minutes, good. <laughs> we, we record a little early. We're, we're in there still. So, so Jacob, tell us uh, real quick again about your businesses and how people can contact you. Sure, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my primary business is Discover Podium. Um, it is at www.discoverpodium.com. Uh, it's a career branding, and um, we do some resume writing and career positioning and things like that. That's the best way to get a hold of me is through contact there. Uh, or at Jacob Warwick at, at Twitter. Uh, that's a good one. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I pretty much reach out to everyone, and I'm on there several hours a day uh, for one reason or the other. So uh, those are probably the best places to get me. Awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Dante, what's your info? Hey, you guys can um, find me at Dante at CarterMedia.net. I'm on LinkedIn as well, so reach out. I'll reach back. All right. I think it's my first time giving my email out. No, you know what? I won't do that. Go to the website. <laughs> you can find me, of course, on LinkedIn. That's where I hang out most of the time. So A. Lee Judge on LinkedIn. And of course, the website is contentmonsta.com. You can find me there. Once again, thank you, Jacob. We really appreciate you joining the show. Absolutely. It was a pleasure being here, guys. All right. And we'll awesome. catch you next time. Thanks again. Right. Adios. Right. Thanks for listening to the Business of Content podcast brought to you by contentmonster.com and Carter Media. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to give it five stars and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.